Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Mr. Tom Tillett. Uh, Mr. Tillett is the uh, former CEO of Reagene, a company that was involved in gene therapy and uh, using gene switches. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you on Regenerative Medicine Today. Thanks for joining us by telephone and sharing your insights. John, it's a pleasure to be with you. So, uh, perhaps for our listening audience, uh, let's do a, a brief overview of the, the ideas and concepts of gene therapy. There's been some, uh, some hype, uh, some promise, and uh, also uh, one or two examples of things that haven't worked out well. So, let's, uh, if you could, for our audience, please do a bit of an overview about what the whole idea is behind gene therapy. That, that's a great question, John, because it's a very... Uh, as many people draw it, it's a very broad field. Having just come about a month ago from the American Society of Gene Therapy meeting, this can cover anything from using uh, viral vectors to put a single gene uh, into correct a genetic disorder to a form of regenerative medicine to cancer vaccines. You know, some people use it to include things like FARNA uh, in this and what Sangama Gamma does with zinc fingers. At the end of the day, I think people look and gene therapy as the opportunity to really find ways of regular or putting genes into humans that will then have a therapeutic benefit uh, for them. You mentioned a variety of applications that range from the introduction of vectors through vaccines. What is the, uh, in your opinion, the, the most uh, short-term prospects for success in, in this broad range of areas? Actually, John, your question is quite uh, timely in that just this week, Intrigen announced that they were filing their uh, BLA with the FDA for E53 product. And so, uh, actually, that's a great story in that they have just recently announced work that they've done with their clinical trial in which before they unblinded the study, they looked at uh, were able to segment uh, their patient populations into those that they predicted would be less likely to respond to to the p53 to the addition of having p53 gene injected into their tumors, and those that were more likely to be responders. And uh, they had uh, discovered that if that if there was if the patient had a high expression of a mutant p53 gene, that that high expression would then, of the mutant 53 gene, would bind normal P53. Therefore, the addition of additional P53 to that tumor would not be a benefit. And as they unblinded the study, it came out exactly like that. It was, they also saw that the, today's standard of care, which, which is, which is that the Shrek state, those patients were more, those patients with the mutant P53 gene were more sensitive to methotrexate and were better responders under that treatment, and that the those without the mutant P53 were better uh, responders to uh, intrigence treatment. So for the patient, it was good news, good news, in that if they found out that they were in one camp or the other, they then had a way of selecting which therapy would be better for them. So it's a great story. I think a lot of people are optimistic that the uh, FDA will act on this before the end of the year. And uh, so by the end of uh, this year, we could have our first uh, gene therapy product on the market, uh, which would be a great success story. And again, this particular uh, therapeutic product would be for all cancers or certain types of cancers? 
Well, potentially, those cancers in which there is low expression of P53 would probably be the, the best candidates for these. And these are typically solid tumors. I know that Intrigen's initial application is specifically for head and neck cancer. But uh, I think any type of solid tumor in which the, uh, there'd be a low expression of the P53 gene, this would be uh, an excellent candidate uh, for use in that uh, as a therapy. Uh, Tom, uh, in terms of uh, these, uh, both the science and the strategies of applying gene therapy, let me begin by asking, what are, what are the principal challenges in this approach? Well, I think there are several. Uh, the first is that uh, constitutive uh, gene expression for therapeutic purposes, even though it has potentially tremendous benefits to the patient, there's some risks involved as, as well. And so one of them is, is what happens if you have permanent gene expression? If you have, if you have this expressed in a way where it's not just a transit expression but long-term expression, uh, what happens if something goes wrong? What's, what's the timing of this needs to be very critical where you need to have something on or off at a particular time? The uh, second issue is, again, as, as we have experience with small molecule drugs, often the dose per patient is extremely important. So certain patients are better responders than others. So you may take two pills every day. Others may take one. Others may take four pills a day. When you're just putting a gene uh, into someone, you've got one fixed dose. And so you do not have the ability to modulate that dosing to optimize it for the patient. And it may be that over a, uh, a course of time, the patient may need a different dose. If you're doing, particularly in a regenerative medicine mode, that, that this could come into play where there's kind of a regenerative mode that you need to go through and then a maintenance mode that you would like to be able to do. And the other challenge, just from a, uh, a commercial standpoint, is simply how do you make money if you're providing a significant long-term benefit to the patient? Uh, how do you capture the appropriate value out of developing these? And even though sometimes we don't like to talk about it, the cost of developing these therapies is, is extremely expensive. And I think my personal opinion is, is that one of the reasons why large pharmaceutical companies have not been interested in this field has been because of the challenge of figuring out how do we make money uh, in this type of a, with this type of an approach because it doesn't fit their historic reimbursement process. So, you know, those reimbursement issues are not minor if you're talking about investing hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars in developing a new therapy, you need to find a way of appropriately being reimbursed. So, those three challenges, permanent gene expression, a fixed dose, limited means of capturing value, or some of the things that have, have been challenges in this area that we have seen. Uh, uh, others would look to these issues around immunogenicity, issues around uh, stable long-term expression as, as pieces of this as well. Uh, I might uh, comment that we've had uh, some discussions on prior podcasts about this whole issue of the, uh, the business model, and uh, as you've appropriately pointed out, uh, there are different uh, conceptual business models for different regenerative medicine therapies, and this is a wonderful example of uh, the need for a different model. Right. And that was really, if you go back to when we started uh, Reagene in 1999, it was really with that thought in mind that if the business of biotechnology was fundamentally about genes and what genes could do to solve major uh, therapeutic problems or major disease problems, then one needed to have a way of being able to safely and precisely regulate those genes. 
and you needed to be able to do it in a way where you could capture value with it as well. And that was that goes back to you know the, the first of our strategy that we developed again in 1999 that we developed when we were at Ramat Haz, and that really then came together beginning in 2003 uh, when we began working with the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, specifically with the McGowan Institute, in, uh, in moving this forward and getting it to a place where we could move it into the clinic. So you, you've introduced this, uh, the challenges in terms of using gene therapy, in terms of uh, regulation of dose and uh, the, when you want the, the gene presented and not presented. So what, what, from your perspective, is the solution to this? Well, what we were developing and uh, what Intrexon uh, continues to develop, and I am not with Intrexon, we merged Reagene with Intrexon about a year and a half ago, and they're continuing uh, with the development of this, is something we call the Reaswitch therapeutic system, which is a molecular switch, and that switch can be used to turn on any gene at any time and virtually to any level with the administration of a small molecule activator drug. And what is what is special about this is that in the absence of the activator drug, the, uh, the gene expression is essentially zero. It is completely turned off. When the patient begins taking the activator drug, it then upregulates it based upon the dosage of the activator drug itself. And what is really critical about this, and what really got us going into this whole area many years ago, is that the class of chemistry that we had selected for this uh, was essentially not pharmacologically active, and so meaning that it has no natural binding sites for it in mammalian systems, including humans. And so these small, mo- uh, these small molecules that we're using as activator drugs are extremely safe to use in all of these uh, mammalian settings. And therefore, you have you know, a greater freedom to be able to, to not worry about if you're dosing a patient long-term, or if you've got to give high doses, et cetera, uh, you know, this has got the ideal uh, profile of a drug one would have uh, for this type of application. So it truly is a gene switch, and uh, you can uh, regulate both the level and the, uh, the presence of the, uh, of the therapeutic. Exactly. And so uh, this, and the excitement that we were able to generate from this, I think, was uh, demonstrated when uh, the Fox Foundation uh, gave us one of the largest grants they had ever given to anyone, a $4.2 million grant, uh, to regulate, uh, to develop this specifically for the field of Parkinson's, and uh, saw the opportunity to, that um, they were very interested in seeing uh, the GDNF, or uh, glial-derived neurotropic factor uh, gene, be under a regulatable system because of the benefits that would provide uh, to the patient that uh, GNF had shown uh, tremendous promise in clinical studies done by Amgen and some other researchers in humans where it appeared to be restoring dopaminergic neurons into the brain. With the expression of this through a a stent that was put into their brains and the the protein itself was directly pumped into uh, the brain, clearly that was not a a solution which was amenable to a large number of patients. But it did give some interesting early clinical data which showed that this approach of expressing or having the protein uh, available in certain parts of the brain would lead to uh, the growth of new dopaminergic neurons, which would help to uh, reverse the effect, potentially, uh, of Parkinson's. So that was quite exciting. And understanding that the expression of any gene in the brain 
in an uncontrolled manner could be risky. Use doing this under a, uh, a regulatable system uh, could be a major advance. And uh, the uh, thank goodness that the uh, uh, that the Michael J. Fox Foundation excuse me, had the foresight and uh, ability to see this and felt that this would have to revolutionize the clinical application of gene therapy. Very interesting. So you've, uh, in this discussion so far, you've introduced us to the uh, potential utilization of gene therapy for cancer and for Parkinson's disease. What else is on the uh, potential horizon in terms of how you could apply this technology? Well, at Regene, we, we were looking at a wide number uh, of applications and worked with uh, a lot of different researchers across the country. Uh, we worked with people at the McGowan Institute looking at regenerative medicine opportunities. We spent a lot of time working with uh, UCI as well. In fact, our our cancer program in melanoma, which is uh, what in what Intrexon has been taking into into clinical trials, were, were key pieces of that. Uh, we also work with people, uh, Evan Schneider of the Burnham Institute, using stem cells in a way that they would migrate to uh, glioma tumors in the brain and use those unique properties of stem cells, where they would then we would then turn on a gene that would then be uh, potentially uh, uh, toxic uh, to the uh, uh, glioma tumors. Uh, we were working with uh, Nick Bullard at the Cleveland Institute as well and looking at ways of uh, correcting uh, epilepsy. So it was a kind of, it just touches on a couple of different examples of kind of a wide range of things that we were uh, looking at. We were also looking, working uh, with different companies uh, such as i in San Diego for uh, multiple sclerosis and regulating interferon. So, you know, there's just uh, the, the number of opportunities was essentially endless that one could imagine, and it's only really limiting the imagination as to the limits of one's imagination as to what the boundaries of this could be. Because again, it goes back to the fundamental ideas: the ability to safely and precisely regulate the expression of a single gene, of a single therapeutic gene, can have tremendous benefits in a wide range of therapeutic outcomes, and certainly. In the field of regenerative medicine, the, if you go back to why was UPMC interested in working with Reagene field beginning in uh, 2002, it was really focused on the vision that we had and people like Alan Russell and others had to, to appreciate the fact that the field of regenerative medicine would greatly benefit by being able to regulate genes uh, in stem cells and other types of cells that would allow you to control the differentiation process, to control the expression of certain genes, and would, would help to provide a, a critical safety mechanism for those applications uh, that would allow, would, would allow the FDA to become more comfortable with this, with patients to become more comfortable with it, with doctors to become more comfortable with it, and with developers of the technology to be able to afford it uh, as well. So, uh, Tom, uh, tell me what's unique about this particular technology. Well. First of all, I think it provides a targeted control of therapeutic gene expression. So, you know, the switch is going to be very specific for one gene and allows, it also allows tissue-specific reset regulation of that gene as well. So uh, that, that's critical. If you think of most therapies today, one of the challenges is side effects. And so you put a small molecule drug in, you're targeting it for specific receptors, but the reality of it is it hits not just that but other things as well. Because of the specificity of our small molecule, of the small molecule ligand uh, for this, and the specificity of the switch linking 
to one gene in particular, it really does allow for a very tight and very targeted regulation. The second, I think, is the fact that you know this the activator drug is not pharmacologically active. It's suitable for long-term use in humans, and the fact that you know this one drug can be used in a variety of applications as well makes it unique. I think we had uh, Reagene had a unique business model in that it provided we had multiple ways of generating revenue uh, without without having to compromise giving up the rights to the, the core technology that we had, uh, and that this also helped to make the gene cell therapy business a more traditional pharmaceutical business because. The, the value capture was in the activator drug, at least the way we envisioned it uh, at that time, and that you would make your money primarily through the sale of the activator drug, which is exactly the way the pharmaceutical companies uh, look at doing that as well. So, you know, that, that we felt made it unique. And what do you see as the future for gene therapy? Well, you know, clearly the pharmaceutical markets are rapidly evolving. We're seeing, you know, changes at all the major ones, and restructuring how they research, questioning, you know, how much, how good are they really at doing fundamental basic research and, and should more of that uh, just be purchased either from university laboratories or small biotech companies and develop their pipelines from that. And so they're also looking at providing or with a greater focus on safety. I think the increased FDA scrutiny on safety issues that we're seeing having a, a major effect. So more targeted treatments, more cost-effective treatments, linking effectiveness to cost. I think we're seeing that now in the U.K., but I would say that's a, a global trend that's going to be required. You know, we're just beginning to realize the benefits that we're, going to, we're, we're getting from the genomics revolution that occurred you know, eight years ago in, in proteomics, systems biology, and you know, that this has potential eventually to lead to cure some diseases, not just a way of treating them, but of curing them. And that is, I think, anyone who's working in this area really would like to do that as well. I do think that, as, we, as I mentioned Intergen earlier, I think that the whole field of gene therapy is at a tipping point today, that there are a number of exciting things out there. I think with the uh, register, with the uh, the move of Intergen in this area and getting the first registration of gene therapy products. There are several others in the pipeline that will come on the market, I think, in the next two years that will help to open up this field, begin to, to, to demonstrate the real promise that we've been hoping that we would have out of this field for many years. Things that Theragene, for example, are doing, I think, are quite exciting in the field of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And they've got some uh, very exciting treatments coming down as well. So I think, I think the public's and the, and the uh, large pharmaceutical companies are going to begin re-looking at the, what's going on in this market and uh, will begin moving toward it as well. And so and I think the expectations that there are for the next generation of therapeutic products is that they need to be safer, they need to be more targeted. I think people are going to eventually, in the long term, expect them to be curative and to be less expensive. And I think each of those represent huge challenges for us as we go forward in realizing that, that the, that the kind of the same old way we've been doing things for many years is not going to be acceptable, and we're going to need to be able to find ways of being able to, to uh, discover, develop, register, market treatments that are going to be more effective, but eventually less costly as well, as we try to meet the needs of not just 
a population in the U.S., but an ever-growing uh, population worldwide that expects to have access to these treatments as well. So huge challenges, huge opportunities, but it's what makes this uh, whole area so exciting and so and really fun to work. It uh, truly is exciting based on the uh, activities and outcomes that you've been able to share with us today. And I would uh, like to uh, thank you for this opportunity to get your insight. Tom, again, uh, thank you for uh, joining us and uh, sharing your insight and experience in this area. As we conclude this podcast, I'd uh, like to remind our listeners that uh, we're not in a position to do diagnosis via the Internet, but we do welcome your suggestions in terms of future topics. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which sponsors these podcasts. Until we meet again in two weeks with another exciting interview, thanks to all of you for listening, and best wishes.